Please turn with me in your Bibles to our passage, uh, our scripture passage for today, which is Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Listen reverently as I read God's word to you. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running, or had run, in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them even For even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I also was eager to do. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we delight in your law, your word, Uh, It is life to us, the message that it contains. It not only points us to the only hope of humanity, Jesus, but upon being sown in our hearts, it then is used by you, Holy Spirit, to uh, feed our souls and strengthen us and make us more Christ-like in our ways and our thoughts and our words. Would you please use this portion of your scriptures to be a blessing to us, but also, uh, and perhaps especially, to glorify you. Help me, aid me, please, and your people as well. We need you, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever celebrated Independence Day 
before you know, Independence Day is also called the Fourth of July. You ever uh, you ever heard of the Fourth of July or Independence Day? Some of you uh, I know have. Uh, some of your older children have. Perhaps you did this on Independence Day. Perhaps you might have gone to see the fireworks at the zoo in Lufkin. Maybe you've been to those fireworks. Uh, my family has in times past. Or maybe you set off your own fireworks. A lot of people like to do that. Or maybe your, your dad did, uh, if you were too young to do that, because they are dangerous. But at any rate, perhaps you have celebrated the 4th of July. Well, I don't know if you know what the 4th of July is about, but the 4th of July is a celebration of the freedom that the United States, our country, gained uh, 246 years ago. Uh, England used to own us. England is across the ocean from us now. Uh, it has always been across the ocean from us, but it's across the ocean. It's a country far away, but it used to own and control the United States. But the United States, uh, the people of the United States, 246 years ago, decided we'd had enough of England, uh, and we uh, fought for our freedom, and we gained it as a country. And that's what we celebrate on July 4th uh, every year. That political freedom, that's what it's called, political freedom, or national freedom, has always been something that's very, been very important to uh, Americans in general. It's something that Americans have fought and died for on more than one occasion in the past. And political freedom is indeed a great blessing to live in a free country. It's uh, something that we should cherish, uh, something that we should uh, fight to protect. But there is another kind of freedom, uh, children, that is even more important than living in a free country. And that is spiritual Freedom. I'm going to call it spiritual freedom. What I mean by this is freedom from being tyrannized by the law of God. Tyrannized means to be beaten down by the law of God and hurt and injured by the law of God. And I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, in fact, I'll explain it now. Um, what I mean by this is this freedom that I'm talking about we'll say, from God's law, in a sense, is a couple of things. First of all, it's freedom from the uh, the need to keep God's law as a condition of our being accepted by God and getting into heaven. That's first, first and foremost what spiritual freedom is about. It's the being free from having to keep God's law perfectly in order to get into heaven rather than uh, being punished in hell. The Bible makes it clear, as you children know this, and you adults as well, that we all break God's law regularly. We break God's law in our thoughts, we break God's law in the things that we say or don't say, and we break God's law by the things we do and don't do, and we do that on a regular basis. So, if our obedience to God's law was to be one of the conditions of our being accepted by God and getting into heaven we would all be lost forever because we would all uh, fall short of meeting that condition of perfect obedience to God. But that freedom uh, from being tyrannized by God's law is not only freedom from the obligation to keep it in order to get into heaven, keep it perfectly to get into heaven, but it's also freedom from experiencing the punishment that God's law calls for 
for our failure to perfectly keep that law. I already referenced hell. And freedom from being tyrannized by God's law is freedom from going to hell, which is what God's law calls for, for those who have broken that law. But we as Christians are not going to go to hell because we've been freed from that sentence of death, of eternal death uh, through the gospel. And we have received spiritual freedom uh, that, that allows us to avoid hell even though we do deserve it. The Bible calls for the destruction of all those who fail to perfectly keep God's law. Uh, Romans 6.23, many of you know it, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that death that's being referenced there by Paul is uh, spiritual death as well as physical death. So if God's law had the final word concerning where we ended up, as I've indicated, we would all suffer for eternity. It is only when we are free from the obligation to perfectly obey God's law as a requirement for salvation. And when we are free from the punishment that God's law calls for upon sinners, it's only when those two conditions are met that we are truly, spiritually free. The kind of freedom that the true gospel brings to those who believe it. That is, the Christian. And it was this very freedom, this very spiritual freedom, that the false teachers in Galatia, who were, uh, who were trying to deceive the Galatian Christians in that church, it was this very freedom that they were trying to take away from uh, the professing Christians there in that uh, area of Asia Minor. What were these false teachers teaching? Well, we, it doesn't come right out and say it directly, but it's pretty, pretty easy to discern from when you read through the, the letter here. They were teaching, for one thing, that in addition to trusting in Jesus as one's Savior and as the Messiah, a person had to keep all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, oh, and also some of the traditions that uh, had uh, also cropped up uh, um, in the intertestamental period, uh, perversions, if you will, of Old Testament Judaism that uh, were being um, peddled by the rabbis of the day in Jerusalem, Israel, and beyond. Uh, and so the Judaizers were essentially saying, you have to keep all these things. In other words, you have to be a good Jew as we define a good Jew, as well as believing in Jesus. And then, you're, then God will be pleased. That's what they were saying. In effect, they were saying salvation is by faith in Jesus plus good works, as defined by them. That is a lie, folks, uh, from the pit of hell. Uh, as the saying goes, actually not from the pit of hell, but it's a, it's a lie, uh, it's the devil's lie. It's a, a, a horrific lie, a damnable lie, and a surefire recipe for being spiritually destroyed forevermore at the hands of a holy God. And this is why Paul both attacks both the lie itself, the teaching itself, and its purveyors so furiously in this letter. He knows that his reader's eternal well-being is at stake. 
Also, God knew, who was speaking through Paul's pen, that the eternal well-being of the church down through the ages, our eternal well-being, was at stake as well as that of the Galatian Christians 2,000 years ago, which is why he had this letter uh, that Paul wrote included in our Bibles and why he inspired that letter. This brings me, finally, to the uh, two uh, points that I want to make from this text uh, that are being made by this text. First is this, that good works play no part in making us right with God is confirmed by the apostles, that's plural, the apostles' acceptance of Paul's co-worker, speaking of Titus now, that good works play no part in keeping us right with God or making us right with God is confirmed by the apostles' acceptance of Paul's co-worker and that God, good works play no part in making us right with God is also confirmed by the apostles' acknowledgement of Paul's calling. So, first, Paul's uh, their acceptance of Paul's co-worker. Again, just remember, the the false teachers in Galatia to whom Paul is writing, are teaching that in order to be a true Christian, a, uh, a saved Christian, you've got to be a good Jew first, as they define the term. Not as Moses would, but as they would. Uh, the, the Judaism of the, the perverted Judaism of that, that day was undoubtedly the, the version that these folks were um, espousing. You had to obey all of the ceremonial commandments found in the Old Testament, as well as any additional ones that they had come up with, uh, in order to be accepted by God and pleasing to God. So they said, the foremost commandment of which was the command that all males should be circumcised. That was a biggie for these guys. That was the biggie, I should say. Why, why circumcision? Why is that so central to uh, their, their gospel? Circumcision meant everything. To the Jews of Jesus' day, to the, uh, but uh, you know, to the women as their for their that their men were circumcised, and to the men themselves. Circumcision was originally given by God to be a sign and seal of the covenant of grace that God made um, with believing Abraham and his spiritual descendants. Actually, prior to that point in time, but was reaffirmed, and that's when the uh, the the sacrament was brought in of circumcision um, was uh, with the Abrahamic administration of the covenant of grace. And so originally it was a sign and seal of that gracious covenant. But over time, over the centuries, its meaning had become corrupted. So that in Paul's day, many if not most Jews saw circumcision as a badge of national identity, and as a de facto requirement for salvation, along with other elements of the ceremonial law, getting circumcised was kind of a way of saying, I come under the, the law fully and I will do all that the law requires of me. And so that's what circumcision had come to mean for so many in Paul's day. And this is exactly what the false, the false teachers in Galatia believed and preached. Let's look at what Paul did when he made this trip to Jerusalem. He brought along 
his companion, Titus. Verse 1, then after an interval of 14 years, uh, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This was a daring move, really, for Paul, because Titus was a Gentile. Remember, they're going up to Jerusalem. Titus is a Gentile, a Gentile convert to Christianity, rather than a Jewish convert to Christianity. Which means, which meant rather, that Titus was uncircumcised. Now, just as there were Judaizers within or around the church in Galatia, there there was also a Judaizing element within the church in Jerusalem at that time. It's rather surprising, wouldn't you say, given the fact that the Jerusalem church was the church home of more than one of Jesus' apostles. One would think that they would have uh, nipped any suggestion that salvation is obtained by faith in Christ plus obedience to the Jewish ceremonial law, that they would have nipped that in the bud, the apostles would have. You'd think. Uh, Jeffrey Wilson, in his commentary, offers an explanation of what may well have happened uh, that uh, prevented that, uh, those Judaizers from being um, silenced by the apostles. He says, the Jerusalem apostles are not the culprits who caused this controversy, meaning uh, uh, this doctrinal controversy in in Jerusalem, but certain false teachers whose whose representations may well have caused the pillars, that is to say the apostles, to waver, not realizing that a vital principle was at stake. So it is possible, this is just one man's uh, speculation, but I think it's pretty good speculation, that the arrival of these false uh, teachers, uh, who were probably pretty talented uh, orators, uh, that they um, may what might have caused the apostles themselves at uh, points to or to have uh, backed off a little bit, or at least tolerated uh, more than they otherwise would have. Um, the views that were held by these Judaizers in the Jerusalem church community. At any rate, we don't know that. Uh, but the Judaizing Christians in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, were highly displeased with the fact that Paul had brought an uncircumcised man into their holy city. They considered it holy. Um, and they were displeased with the fact that Paul was advocating a law-free gospel, if you will. A law-free message of forgiveness. Neither of those things did these heretics like. And they were in and around the church there in Jerusalem. What they did in response? Well, we read this in verses 2 and 4 of our text. They infiltrated, some of them at least, infiltrated a private meeting that... Uh, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus were having with the influential members of the Jerusalem church, probably Peter, James, and John, and possibly others. And I'll read the read what happened there. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, meaning to Jerusalem, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private 
to those who were of reputation. So notice it was in private. To those who were of uh, reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in, uh, the inference there seems to be sneaked into their meeting, that, that uh, Paul and Barnabas and T- uh, Titus were having with the, uh, the leaders of the church. It was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. These men apparently tried to convince the church leaders and the apostles among them that they should insist that Titus be circumcised. If he's going to remain here, he needs to be circumcised. And they were trying to persuade the leadership of the church. Paul was in the room. You guys need to, you guys need to order him to be circumcised. This is unacceptable. Well, how does Paul react to this campaign to get Titus circumcised? He reacts swiftly and unyieldingly. Verse 5, But we did not yield in subjection to them, meaning the Judaizers who were present, for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You see, The very gospel itself, as I just read there in verse 5, the very gospel itself was at stake. Nothing less than the gospel message itself, the truth of how one is saved, was at stake. Why? Since circumcision was being billed as a good work that was necessary for salvation. You add anything to Jesus and you lose Jesus. This is why Paul dug in his heels and refused to budge an inch on this occasion. And his efforts paid off. The other apostles were convinced by Paul's strident argument that this is not acceptable, not right, and as a consequence, they decided not to force Titus to be circumcised, and, more than that, they accepted Titus um, as a full-fledged Christian, even though he was and remained uncircumcised. And we again know this from verse 3, not even, uh, uh, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled, meaning by the leaders of the church, to be circumcised there in Jerusalem. So, the conclusion of this uh, first point I'm making is that law-keeping, and I trust I'm not telling any thing that's earth-shattering to any of you, contributes nothing to one's right standing before God um, at all. In a judicial sense, in the courtroom of heaven, we are not declared acceptable to God and pleasing to God and righteous in his sight because of anything we have done in the way of obedience or attempts at obedience. This is... Uh, a commonly heard message from this pulpit because it's a commonly heard message in Scripture. And some of the most uh, uh, vociferous arguments are made here in Galatians. So, that good works play no part in making us right with God is confirmed by the Apostles' uh, acceptance of Titus. 
but it is also confirmed by the apostles' acknowledgement of Paul's own calling as an apostle. In Galatia, these agitators that we've always already referenced were apparently claiming, this was their claim, that the leaders of the Jerusalem church, so this is in Galatia, they'd come to, they were, they were in Galatia trying to um, lead the Galatians astray, and they, they apparently made the claim that the leaders of the Jerusalem church, where Paul now is, uh, at least at this point that he's, uh, the account is talking about here, the agitators claimed that the leaders of the church held to the same gospel, the same message that they themselves were promoting, rather than the one, the gospel, that Paul actually had proclaimed. Paul's message is, and his gospel was that we are forgiven, sinners are forgiven and reconciled to God only uh, by believing in Jesus. But they were saying, no, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to obey the law uh, as interpreted by the rabbis of the day, including the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Don't know what led them to think this way. Uh, they're either misinformed, the Judaizers were in Galatia, or they misconstrued or knowingly misrepresented the views of the apostles in Jerusalem. But the fact is, that's what they were apparently telling people in Galatia. Regardless, what Paul recounts in verses 5 through 9 deals a fatal blow to the Galatian Judaizers' claim that their gospel, not Paul's, accurately represented what the Jerusalem apostles believed and taught. Let's read that, verses 5 through 9. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reported to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul arranged this meeting with the leaders of the Jerusalem church to acquaint them with the exact nature of the message of the of the preached of the preaching that he had been delivering to the Gentiles over the course of his ministry prior to this ministry uh, to the Gentiles prior to this point in time. He he's coming to them and saying, "This is what I've been preaching. I li- I got this from Jesus." This is the message that I've been... In other words, they're comparing notes. He's comparing notes, uh, in effect, uh, with the other apostles. His message is that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And he was concerned, it appears, that his missionary efforts among the Gentiles 
would be in vain if the authorities in Jerusalem failed to endorse the free gospel that he had been preaching. If they didn't endorse it, the Judaizers who were following Paul around could continue plausibly claiming that their gospel was that of the Jerusalem apostles. But thankfully, the other apostles did endorse Paul's gospel without any reservations or qualifications, as is evident from what we read, and I won't read it again, but there in verse 6. He says, they contributed nothing to me, meaning they didn't modify anything that I was saying. Say, no, that's not quite right. You need to teach it this way, or you need to say that. He said, they, they based, that's perfectly fine, Paul. We agree wholeheartedly with uh, what you teach, that that is indeed the, the true gospel. And so they endorsed it without reservations. Commenting on, uh, on um, this phrase, Philip Ryken writes, to find it here, I lost my place, there it is. Philip Ryken writes in his commentary, the other, the other apostles, uh, Peter, James, John, the other apostles did not have to give official approval to Paul. They simply acknowledged that he already had God's approval because he was an apostle in his own right. Nor did the other apostles add anything to Paul's message. They did not try to amend, edit, change, or otherwise alter his gospel. They added nothing to it. They removed nothing from it. They changed nothing about it. They simply accepted it as it was. Why is that important for us? Well, again, Paul's gospel was a law-free gospel. By that, I don't mean that the law is in no way applicable to the Christian. You all know that as Christians, we are required to obey God's law as forgiven people already, as an expression of our love for God and our gratitude to him for what he has done and our desire to glorify him. But when it comes to how is one made right with God, how one is justified in the sight of God, declared innocent, Uh, and pardoned of sin, it's law-free. I should say, we're saved by the law-keeping of Christ rather than any law-keeping of our own. Our efforts at being good play no part whatsoever in reconciling us to God and making us acceptable to him in the courtroom of heaven. What are you looking to for your right standing before God? Are you looking to the fact that you come from a good family? That you have uh, the parents that you do? That you go to church? Those things are all good. But if you think that God is somehow pleased with you and that you are acceptable to God to any degree whatsoever because of those things, you're deceived. 
you're deceived. You can't do a thing in and of yourself prior to becoming a Christian to please God, to make yourself acceptable to him. Jesus alone, his law-keeping, his obedience to the moral law, perfect obedience to the moral law that you and I can never render, and his perfect fulfillment of the penal sanctions of the law, the punishment portions of the law, which requires death for sin, his perfect fulfillment of that portion of the law as well, that's what saves a sinner. Jesus' substitutionary work in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Is that what you're trusting in? Children, is that what you're trusting in? If it's not, you need Jesus. He's your only hope of being forgiven and of having God as your friend rather than your enemy. Some people wouldn't like the fact that I'm saying this to children because it's so heavy. But you children need to know this. You need to know this. Jesus alone can save you. But he will save you to the uttermost if you trust in him to make you right with God and him alone. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for the fact that we can't do anything to commend ourselves to you. For were we to do so uh, prior to having Jesus as our Savior, we would merely be commending our own dunghill, as Paul puts it, or as somebody put it. Lord, uh, it reminds us of how small we are, how helpless we are, and how um, wretched we are without Christ. We thank you for this reminder from Paul's letter of our need to trust in him alone. Would you please help those of us who are trusting in him alone to regularly remind ourselves of that fact, that Jesus alone is responsible for our well-being. And if there's anyone here today, man, woman, or child, who is not, has not trusted in Jesus alone to save him, would you please grant that faith right now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So true. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.